Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. to another Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Karina Faith. Welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be here. Indeed, indeed. Now, we've come to talk about your film, The Power, which is released April the 8th, 2021, for anyone that's listening in the future. Um, how can people see the film from that date? Um, it's going to be on Shudder exclusively for a while, um, I believe for a few months, and then it's going to be on other digital platforms. Where are you from? Around here. Back to serve your community. Thank you for choosing me. I require discipline. Stick to your rank, never question an order. Yes, matron. I won't keep you if you don't fit. We have to move nearly all the patients out because of the cut tonight. You will stay on. The dark shift. Does the dark bother you? A place people die in. Should never be allowed to get that dark. I love working nights. It can get up to all sorts. Bit of dark, won't hurt ya. What is that smell? It's like it's burning. Are you scared of something? Are you just making this up? No, I'm not making it up. A nurse must give of herself entirely. Sacrifice. How much are you willing to give? Who is she? Gay. What does she want? Val, now listen to me. And you were sent by God to guide me. Be my knight and walk beside me. Be my guardian and protect me. Excellent. Now then, to encourage people to see it, do you want to give us a brief synopsis to what the power is all about? Um, it is the story of a young nurse um, who is working her first shift 
in a hospital in 1973, mm-hmm. uh, 1974, I believe, in the end, um, during the uh, power blackouts that were happening at that time. Um, and she has to, she ends up having to work overnight with no power. And um, a haunting occurs. Now, we're not going to do any spoilers, hopefully. I'll leave that to you if you want to. But I, my questions certainly aren't spoilery. Um, okay very much geared towards the process of how the film was made. But the first thing I wanted to ask you about was, this is the first, you're the first filmmaker I've spoken to where I I know I saw the script on the Brit list and here I am talking to you after making the film. That's not to say that films on the Brit list don't get made. It's more the fact they've not come on my podcast. Um, right. And I remember I interviewed uh, Caroline Get- Karina Getman at uh, Altitude last year for Inside Pictures. Okay. And uh, she was raving about the film and excited about it coming out. And uh, in particular, I also mentioned the uh, Gazelle Twin uh, collaboration as well. That was noted on the interview. But for those that don't know, because this is the, the, my audience is largely sort of indie filmmakers and sort of filmmakers who have not yet made the feature and stuff. Um, what 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 what's the Brit list and 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 um, and how how did you end up to how did you come to be on it? The Brit list is um, a list of unmade feature scripts. Mm-hmm. Um, and the funny thing is like you're the writer I don't actually know how I ended up on it like, <laughs> I have no idea <laughs> it's um it's all the other people in the industry who are reading your material or who are the producers or you know are working in different mm. ways um I believe it's voted on um so it's kind of scripts that are floating around that people feel should get made. Got you, happened. got you. Okay, so that's interesting that you, it was as much a surprise to you as everyone else that read it, in a sense, when it came in the news. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. well look, let's... you get to go and, and have uh, drinks and have your pitch taken. I saw all those pictures. It looked, it looked lovely. Now, going back to the power, um, what for you, now we'll talk about the script first then. So what for you was the kernel of the idea that, that came to you as a writer that would eventually lead to the, the film, The Power? Um, it was a little mini collision of a bunch of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I generally have a visual image, I think, as a starting point for a story. Okay. Um, and it's something that will stick in my head that I can build on. Um, and our, in the news at the time, so it was like six years ago when I started writing it, um, mm-hmm. the news was breaking about all the institutional abuse scandals that had been hidden for years um, that were all coming out to the surface in a nightmare way. Um, And I found it very affecting, um, the idea of what had been happening for so long and these people that have been silenced for so long. And for some reason, that into my head popped an image of um, patients in the hospital sitting up in bed, reaching out. Um, okay. which was some kind of visual kind of nightmarish horror expression, I suppose, of, of the idea of being stuck in, in an institution you can't, uh, that you have no power in. Yeah, yeah, so I was yeah. Thinking about that territory. Um, I was looking for a ghost story to write and I felt the kind of the parallel between uh, a, a spirit, as it were, trapped in a building and the lost souls of all those people that were kind of, put through that experience in those places. I felt like a lot of connection to me. 
Um, so it felt like a, a good way to try and tell that story via a ghost story. Um, and then I also, researching that period of the early 70s, I came across this image of this telephonist working in completely in the dark with um, an oil lamp. Um, and I, I didn't massively know much about the blackouts, really, but it was an image of somebody just trying to do their normal job during one of these blackouts. Mm. And she had this um, very old-fashioned-looking oil lamp, but she was all in her 70s clothes and working away. And it was just like an amazing combination of classic, gothic, kind of Victorian ghost imagery. Mm. The 70s, and I really love um, gothic storytelling and literature and kind of classic ghost stories as much as I never thought of that yeah because the idea of being by candlelight is like the 70s became instant Victoriana exactly so it just just married a lot of stuff that I love and find interesting as well as themes that I thought were just really disturbing to me on a personal level and um, resonated enough for me to think okay I could stick with this as an area and and push it through into a longer story now I've got to ask obviously that's an arresting image that stuck with you from the 70s when you were doing your research into that period and what was happening during the blackouts that were a result of the, the minor strikes and the, and the fight with the government what was what was like the maddest thing you discovered that that might blow people's mind in 2021 that we kind of put up with um, I think what I was really struck by was um, it, it, everything I was reading and looking at. Um, it felt it feels more like the early seventies were more like the fifties than and so entrenched in class divide. Still, it's so intense. It's very easy to underestimate. I think how powerful how intense the power structures were and that there was obviously people were questioning it and people were doing things and it mm. was a very radical time, but, but the power of people in a setting like a hospital, um, it was more like being in an army. It felt, I read some diaries of young nurses at the time, a young particular book, which I found very useful um, reference. And she described how um, if, the matron came into the ward or the chief hospital came in that you would pretty much stand to attention stop speaking and i've got an image in the film where the nurses divide to let them walk through and that's real that really happened so the kind of sense of power being almighty um although in many ways that's still true today but but it, i was shocked at how um Unapologetic, it was. Yeah, I was going to. I made a note. It was like the the, the thing that you portray really, really, uh, really, really starkly is the battle of the sexes was a was a binary issue almost in mid seventies. There were just men who were doctors, women that were nurses, and then, like you say, these matrons that were sort of this in, this go between between this 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 obvious unequal power play, as it were, or unequal power system. Hmm. Um, where the matron is literally complicit in, in almost while being strict of a minutiae like the skirt length or something, mm. turning a blind eye to much bigger horrors that are going on to people in a day to day aspect. Yeah. When, when and sort of how did that aspect sort of begin to sort of emerge as that's the story to be telling is uh, as 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 part of my ghost story. Yeah, in a way that was um that was kind of there from the beginning because I was thinking like with these big 
institutions, whether they're whether it's politics or orphanages or hospitals or schools or whatever, um, stuff happens. People get badly treated who don't have power, mm-hmm. and for that to happen, a lot of people have to be complicit in different ways. You yeah. know, like it doesn't mean that they have to know for sure everything that's happening. But it, it requires a lot of people to not know, to actively not know for these things to take place. Yeah. And so I thought uh, that was always a particular interest for me. It was like a bunch of characters who kind of basically should all have done the right thing or should all know. But that isn't necessarily how people act. Um, I think we know that from the whole kind of whistleblower phenomenon. It's a very hard thing to do. And when you've got a very intense power structure and somebody with a lot of power and and that kind of pressure trickling down on a whole bunch of people who have varying degrees of less power. Yeah, it's it toxic. Mm. Um, so I think the matron role is really interesting because she's got the ultimate power of the nurses, which is a is a kind of something she's fought for, and it is a power that um, is great for a woman to have. But actually, below the kind of uh, senior doctors and the chief and this is in my story but it's real as well she was not she didn't have that level of respect and she didn't have any power when it came to them she was pretty much kind of you know carrying out their their vision really yeah um, yeah 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 now, so I thought that was really interesting no for sure for sure because it's a it's a good almost it's, it's it's a good parallel story that then becomes obviously the st- the, the, the driving part of the story so in that sense, and I've, I get, I've spoke to a lot of horror filmmakers um, in the past, and one of the challenges that I, that I think a lot of people come across is is the provenance that's attached to your horror. It's all very well setting up the world where the horror's taking place, but this horror's coming from another realm. It's not coming from, I mean, obviously it can be a metaphor from your imagination, but I think it's safe to say something horrible exists to take to 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 take its revenge, to take its its. Um, to change things for the better or for worse in your film. So what were, what were some of the uh, challenges in terms of, so we understand, we understand it enough so you could keep a mystery from us, but uh, therefore frightening, but also appear logical enough to propel the drama forward. I mean, that's a, that's a balance that all horror films fight, I think. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it was um, the biggest juggling act probably in the script writing process was just, I've got a massive resistance to saying too much, but you have to say enough. To yeah. People to have, to kind of enjoy the ride without feeling irritated and just confused. I mean, it's, it's great if you know that you're being confused deliberately. Yeah. Um, and I wanted it to be disorientating sometimes to watch, but that's very different from just not getting anything. Um, so that was a tricky challenge of trying to calibrate um, how to hold information back um and how to um yeah how to build a sense of of threat and the presence of of the ghost who is a big character actually in the story but you don't see her very much um that was that remained a challenge throughout in the shooting the writing the shooting the editing everything all right okay yeah so um what was the importance for you to making val an orphan because I mean, she's she's on her own as it is in the in the in the hospital, and that's scary enough. But obviously, the sense of her being being alone as a starting point is a fairly interesting position to come from. 
Yeah, I guess I was thinking about, um, I suppose, real life horror is it, always the most disturbing, really. And, and a lot of this story comes from uh, the horrors of accounts that I, I read of people's kind of just really falling between the cracks and getting lost in the system and nobody standing up for them. And um, that's the kind of thing that I find really horrific. Mm. So it, it was putting, making her somebody in that situation um, was just a shorthand way of uh, explaining that there wouldn't have been anyone on her side specifically. And also because uh, I think it's not just about this could happen in a hospital. It's about this could happen in any setting, in mm. any big setting where people don't have, um, where where the people in that place are easy to dismiss, where they're easy to not listen to. Um, I mean, that applies now as well. But like, she's a character that's easy to to shut up and silence. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit. There's a big part of your film which is kind of know your place. It's sort of. You know, Val thinks I've arrived because I've trained to be a nurse and here I am. And she's just swapped one oppressive power system, which will be, I guess, the nuns at the orphanage for the matron and the doctors at a hospital, which she thought she was going into this vocation. And in yeah, fact, she's just exactly slotting it. into a system. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. I was interested in the systems, really. And like, you can't really beat that. Like she goes into it thinking I've made it, I've kind of, you know, I've left my past behind. Um, but you can't really play those systems on their own terms. I mean, that's that's kind of her journey. It's like she was never going to be allowed to succeed. Yeah. Um, she was always going to be put back in her box. Um, and and that's the journey that she's on is, is kind of smashing her box a bit. Indeed, indeed. Now, Rose Williams plays Val and fans of Medici and Sandition and Curfew will perhaps recognise her. What what for you did um, did Rose bring to Val that perhaps wasn't on the page, but the minute she began performing it, you're like, that's Val. <laughs> it was literally, it sounds cheesy, but it literally was like that. Yeah. <laughs> so I was watching a bunch of tapes and um, lots of great reads and lots of lovely actors, but Rose instantly emitted a warmth that okay. I thought felt real and that was a kind of I thought was a really great way to start the story where you're kind of instantly on someone's side because mm. there's a kind of a warmth and a vulnerability that she brought to the character um which does quite a lot of her backstory without having to say anything it's, it's subconscious it's subtle but mm. it's a very intense short ride and you've got to be with her quite quickly yeah um, so I didn't want the character to feel inaccessible. I wanted to just kind of be sitting on her shoulders and be with her from the beginning. And I think Rose, um, as a person, that's what she's like. She just has got a real warmth and transparency to her. And um, I mean, it was her acting as well, but but just that that touch, I loved. It really worked for me. Um, and then also, Rose is um, incredibly brave and bold and resilient and through our conversations um mm. whilst we were deciding to work together um that's what really shone through was that she really wanted it for herself she really wanted to go somewhere that she wouldn't necessarily have been able to go to in in a lot of the other roles she's done and 
um, in many of the roles that are offered, it's you know it's quite an extreme storyline. Yeah, she has to push herself for certain. She, she has to push herself, and, and she, um, you know, she's kind of breaking a lot of stereotypes. I think as she goes through. Yeah, the, it's a, I mean, surprisingly, it's from where, where she starts as the like almost like the little scared robin jumping around your garden. It becomes this very physical, visceral experience for Rose's character. So she's got, she's she's like almost like not looking at anyone in the eye to fiercely grabbing it with both hands. And that's kind yeah, of, and everything like, else in between. It's just a very, it's like the ultimate story of female behaviour and oppression, really. It's actually very polite. And um, as you say, she doesn't want to cause a ripple. Um, and then the kind of the possession element of the story means that there's this massive kind of outpouring of real feelings and catharsis. Indeed. Now, Laura Bellingham is your cinematographer, and you've not worked together before, have you, on films? Okay, so what what was your process for selecting her as a cinematographer like? How did that work, and what made you go for Laura? And then once you've chosen to work together, what was the early conversations about in terms of look and feel for the aesthetic of the power? Um, I was lucky to have some great conversations with some really good DPs Hmm. um, in a good situation with that but Laura um she instantly I thought she would be great to collaborate with and for a first feature that is massive um to just know that you would be on the same wavelength that um there's no kind of dynamics or ego stuff getting away that that just feels really crucial for me Mm um when you're kind of going through the hellfire of your first feature that it's not about dynamics it's just about collaboration she's really really collaborative um and she's very um across the genre she's watched a huge amount of um films that were we basically speak the same language is what i felt like we have we could talk about scenes and have a lot of visual references that were shared from the beginning yeah um, so that was very reassuring. And we just got on well. So that meant we could sit down and watch a ton of films together and just do the kind of prep that the dream prep really, just literally sit and watch films, analyze them scene by scene, go, we like this shot. That that shot was really interesting. What would it be like? You know, mm. what's what made that scene work? Um, we did quite a lot of that. Um, so by the time we got to set, we had our own shorthand and we'd had some fun together as well. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think was invaluable during the experience. Um, and we knew that we, we we had a kind of detailed, detailed shot list that we worked out very carefully together. But I knew and she knew that we were probably going to have to throw that away, which we did. <laughs> <laughs> we, what you? We, what, why, why did you know you'd have to throw it away? Because of time it, or because you knew pressure, you'd have other ideas? Yeah, no, pressures of time. It okay. Just, I had, you know, kind of precise versions of how I wanted to cover everything. Yeah. But I also knew there was a very strong chance I would not get to, um, that wouldn't happen. So there was a few scenes where I was like, okay, we have to have this many shots, otherwise it literally won't cut together. (laughs) We had to to carve out the time for some of those bigger set piece type scenes. Yeah. The other ones we had, we we had decided already, um, that we wanted to make a virtue of 
shooting things in quite a minimal way and yeah. make it feel deliberate. So it yeah. was deliberate, but also that's that is the situation we're in. So it was about making sure the production design really worked um, for wider images and playing things out in one or two shots rather than six well, look, shots. This is, this, is, this is a good segue for me then. Um, last week I was talking to Chris Smith about another Shudder original, The Banishing, which is late 1930s. I heard that convey, yeah. And I, and I asked him this question. So I ask you the same, but obviously about 1970s. Like, what's the, ch- what's the production challenges of a period horror set in 1970s East London? And then making it in the present. I mean, any tricks or cheats of how to shoot that period on a tight budget that you can share with the Britflix audience? I would say don't set it in the hospital is my number one piece of advice. <laughs> <laughs> then it turns out that medical gear is like the most expensive period stuff. Oh, really? Loads of, I think probably because there's loads of um, period TV mm-hmm. uh, medical stuff. So they can, it's, very valuable it's rare and they can charge a lot for it so that was actually really tricky but we found that out too late obviously Blimey. Um, so i think the approach for me was um it was i was much more interested in getting the themes through and nailing the sense of the atmosphere of the era rather than being absolutely accurate yeah um so we we've got there's nothing in there that's totally wrong mm. but we, for me, I wanted to use like the color palette, for example, which is a, a really important part of the whole project for me. But is it the color of the wall is a good, cheap way to control the kind of sense of an era and atmosphere compared to filling it with expensive props? Got you. Um, so we thought about color a lot, um, you know, different. Areas of the hospital are painted different colours, but they are colours that are specific to that time through looking at a lot of pictures. Um, and uh, so we, we just decided not to get too hung up on it, really. And, and also it's quite sparse. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't have the money to fill the big spaces with loads of expensive props, but actually we didn't want to because mm-hmm. we wanted um, the atmosphere of the place to come through and for it to feel quite kind of bleak and and unfurnished really yeah. um and looking at pictures from the time it was really minimal that, that there wasn't tons of stuff everywhere um it was just you know the kind of impact of a particular colored design curtain with a particular colored wall and then a, quite a simple desk with not much on it i i think actually there was a simplicity to um, yeah, well I, ima- I imagine back then you know the, the the even the most basic equipment is what we think of today was not really mass produced like it would be today, and so and intensive care was incredibly minimal. I mean, yeah. that is all stuff that's developed in recent history. So looking at what intensive care looked like was a real shock. I mean, it really wasn't Indeed. very much. Well, look, so I've got that, two I've got two more questions for you. Um, firstly, the female punk band Gazelle Twin on the soundtrack. How did that collaboration come around? Um, she wrote the score with Max Wardner and they're both electronic artists in their own right. Yeah. Um, Max was already attached to the project. Um, and we both felt we really wanted, um, a female presence in the kind of whole experience of the score. Yeah. And we absolutely love her work. She's very exciting. She's very raw. Um, she works from a very emotional place and she's very horror literate. Um, so we just asked her if she, she would like to, and they hadn't collaborated before, but they, it was a really brilliant collaboration and they will work together 
again. And they already Excellent. have one. Excellent. Um, they, they both bring something very different to the table. Uh, but yeah, they. she generated some music for me um, that I had even before we got to SAC. I was able to pay, play cast and crew some of the music yeah. in the space to give them a kind of bit of a flavour of, of what the whole thing was going to feel like. Brilliant. It was really useful. Um, and then the two of them, they're both both being musicians as well as composers. They they wanted to build the whole score. Mm-hmm. So came to the location, the hospital, and they did a lot of field recordings. Um, so they uh, recorded Atmos from the big, huge, empty spaces, and they found lots of um, old bits of gear, trolleys and wheelchairs and old pill bottles and made them all create noise and recorded that. And that, that became the source for quite a lot of the pieces in the film. Um, oh, interesting. So, yeah, it was kind of all organically grown from the building, really. That was how their inspiration. And then we had some kind of um, synth sounds that were specific for time that that went into the, the pot oh, as nice. well. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they've got all the right gear. So that was that was a, a dead cert. Um, and, but the, the score is was probably as involved in a way as the shoot for them. It, they spent a huge amount of time on it and they've got a lot more time than maybe they would normally get because COVID kind of extended our yeah, yeah, yeah. in a weird way. Um, but I'm, I'm proud of what they did on the score. Well, look, I mean, that, you, you, that's my final question is so, and you, you already sort of hinted at this with, um, with your reference to post-production. So what, what about your story did you discover in post that maybe wasn't there on the script or even as you were shooting it, you imagined that was, I mean, what were the opportunities and what were the threats that that represented in terms of pulling the final film together? Um, there was uh, some holes, I think, that mm-hmm. I found in the edit. Um, there was things that just we really wanted to shoot and they were um, scheduled to shoot, but that that weren't the actual kind of building lock bones of scenes mm-hmm. um, didn't get to shoot because you end up having to shoot all the essentials obviously to tell of the story. Um, but and I was really felt a loss that we hadn't shot them and I'm talking about kind of more textual moments like being in a corridor moments where there isn't plot playing out but probably is what you'd remember from watching the film I think and it and describes the character of the set the building of the yeah. location um so if it turned out that that was really vital that stuff that <laughs> <laughs> wasn't just the luxury that we actually really needed it um for all those reasons for pacing uh for, for atmosphere to kind of build tension that isn't just about stuff happening yeah um, so i was i'd never actually had pickups before but we got three days of pickups after um during the edit which was amazing so we managed to do that and then I think we also discovered there was a kind of pacing issue that felt okay when you read the thing as a script, yeah. but when you actually watched it as as an edited thing, there was a kind of odd lapse of energy towards the back third of the film. So mm-hmm. we, I created a, another couple of scenes um, with, a, with a more kind of high energy flavour. Okay. Um, specific set piece um, that happens in a different location we hadn't seen before. Um, to kind of keep the ride going and building um, yeah. without dull. 
Um, so yeah, having pickups was an amazing thing because it enabled us to do all that. And that's not something you get on short films. No, no, no. Look, I, I'm conscious of the time, but just one last thing then. So, um, having done the short films previously, what do you think you experienced that you couldn't that couldn't have been you couldn't have been prepared for from shorts that you've learned from having done the feature that you could pass on to the uh, the potential first time filmmaker feature filmmaker listening in? I think short films and working TV generally, because I, I worked in fractal films, um, directing and producing before. Yeah. Before getting to drama, I think I was well prepared for the reality that basically you don't get what you want and it's really heartbreaking every single day. You feel really depressed at the end of every day because you feel like it hasn't worked. So I knew that was going to be the ride and I just had to kind of keep the faith through that. Um, I suppose what, for me, it was more the other way around. It was more that it was actually much better than I thought. Like, because doing a feature, you get to spend loads of time with the same crew and build up a proper rapport and make progress together. And that doesn't happen on the short because it's all very kind of short and intense. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I was with producers that I'd been working with for years to get to that point. So that is unlike anything that I'd experienced before because it was just so positive. Um, and I, I thought maybe that I would get exhausted and I wouldn't have the stamina because I'd only ever shot for shorter blocks of time before. I thought, what's it going to be like to just keep going and going for that long? But because of those things and because of feeling like I was with a real tribe mm. and we were doing it together, um, it was just much, much better than I thought it would be. So it is like Brian De Palma says, when you go into the tunnel, there's only one way out to get to the other end of the tunnel. Yeah, 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 it was. Yeah, yeah, you're in it together. You can't turn around. No, you definitely can't turn around, nor did you want to. Indeed. Well, look, the power's out on April the 8th. It just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the BritFlix podcast. Thank you. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. 